This morning, I'd like to, I might mention this, that there is no clock up here this morning, uh, but I'm sure that they'll write and light the red light, and I see their head shaking back there, so that I can't use that as an excuse. I'll take my wristwatch off. Doesn't mean I'm going to. <laughs> David, does this have an alarm? <laughs> And uh, pray that the Lord will hold me down just a little bit. Uh, as you know, last week I was speaking to you about uh, Moses and the golden calf. And I've been speaking to you about the second coming and the disobediences of Israel especially. Because uh, the time of Jacob's trouble or the time of the great tribulation will come because of the continued disobedience of Israel, God's earthly people, and to bring about the second coming of our Savior Jesus Christ, the rapture of the church, all that is glorious to us who really love the Savior very deeply. Now, the only subject mentioned more in the New Testament than the second coming of Christ <clears throat> is faith. That's the only other subject that is mentioned more than the second coming of Jesus Christ. And faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And what do we hope for? Well, listen to Paul. Looking unto that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the Son of God. He's coming in the clouds of heaven to receive us unto himself. So faith in Christ as Lord and Savior is number one. And the number two subject is the second coming. Isn't it strange that so little is mentioned about the second coming from the pulpits of the land? <clears throat> Think of this, that of the two great ordinances of our faith, Believer's baptism and the Lord's Supper. Baptism is mentioned 15 times by Paul and the second coming 55 times. And the Lord's Supper is mentioned but a few times. And these are the two great ordinances of our faith. So picture the place of the second coming of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. It is found in Matthew 24. All of Matthew 24 has to do with the coming of Christ. It is found in Luke 21, whole chapter given to the second coming of Christ. In Mark 13, it is devoted to it, while 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and Revelations, uh, Revelation are completely immersed in it. So no subject is so greatly treated outside of the subject of faith, which is the essential. For after all, faith is the means of our salvation, for by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so this 
message of the second coming is the tremendous message of Scripture for believers. In the Old Testament of the 46 prophets, 10 speak of Christ's first coming and 36 speak of Christ's second coming. In the New Testament, 300 verses are devoted to it or one in every 25 verses has to do with the second coming of Jesus Christ. Yet, beloved, if you were to look around you today in this uh, day of scoffers that we're living in, uh, you'd hardly believe that. Do you know that according to the Red Book, well-known national magazine, only 2% of all seminary graduates believe in the second coming of Christ bodily to this earth. 2%. Less than 10% believe in his virgin birth. But listen to me. If the remaining 98% of graduates from seminaries are right, then, beloved, no grave will ever be opened on this earth. And no one will ever arise from the dead. For the whole message of Scripture is that we are to have bodies fashioned like unto the body of Jesus Christ. And if the seminaries are training those to believe that there will be no bodily resurrection of the Savior, some ethereal resurrection or vapor form, and God help us if that's all we can think about in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that it was some mystical resurrection and not the body of our precious Savior, I feel sorry for this nation and I'm glad the Lord's coming soon. If this is what our seminaries are going to send out to us, you can picture what is going to happen in the churches throughout the land. And why do you think that so many of the great fundamental churches, and some of you older people here especially, will remember that some of the greatest fundamental, fundamentalist churches in this land are now the seats of modernism? Some of the greatest sects of this land, the sectarian groups, like the old Methodists, and we can go down through the old Presbyterians, and the Calvinists, and the great Baptist background preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ, the second coming of Christ, preaching the divinity of Christ, his vicarious atonement, his coming again, his resurrection. Oh, how tragic to think that we've come to a point like this in our nation's history. Why do you think that the nation is under the judgment of God right now? Just look at our nation. Or do we really want to? You listen to your television, you listen to your radio, you read your newspapers. Doesn't it make you sick within your soul? Of course, I'm older. And I look back over a good many years 
And when I look back over the years and I think of way back and what this nation, when I was a young man and what it meant to me to be part of these United States and how we all, young men and young women, love this nation, it's hard for me to conceive. And if someone had told me that it could happen here, I would not have believed it. But there has been such a turning away from this Lord we love so deeply. So, beloved, if Christ is not coming back, the dead will never rise and neither will we. For the Lord says himself, he will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel in Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the clouds in the air, and then shall we ever be with the Lord. And I'm thankful for the last verse. It says, Wherefore comfort ye one another with these words. Now I hope you're living and breathing in this kind of Christianity. Otherwise, you don't understand Christ. You've missed the boat. You're not living in the vibrancy of the fact not the foolish fancy, not the old wives' fables, but the fact of the second coming of Christ and he's going to clothe you upon with a glorious body fashioned like unto his glorious body. Oh, I'm so thankful for that. How blessed and how wonderful. How precious. You should all, well, I... We're not the kind of a church that shouts maybe, you know, hallelujah and amen, but I have to say from my own heart when I'm talking about it, it's saying hallelujah inside. Because no matter if that old heart of mine might have gotten a little weak, its fervency spiritually hasn't been touched one little bit. And so there is this great joy to the Christian's heart. If you're really a Christian now, I'm not talking to the churchgoers this morning who come to church to look nice, who feel it might do their children a little bit of good morally, and all of these other things. I could send you to organizations that will help your moral character if that's all you're interested in. I'm talking of those who really have been born again of the incorruptible seed of the Word of God and know Christ as their personal Savior, know what life's all about, have no false perspectives, don't think they're here to become successful or famous or have great prestige, but believe that they're here for one purpose. It is a journey to God through Christ and eternity. And this is just the preparation ground, and that's it, nothing else. When you get that in your heart, it all changes, you see. Paul says, if Christ be not risen from the dead, your faith is vain, and you're yet in your sins. He says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we're of all men most miserable. In other words, it's just a panacea, just a, a sort of an anesthetic to sort of keep you kind of slap happy in this life. But that is not the key. We begin in this life with our faith in Christ, and then we're seated already together with him in heavenly places right now 
I'm seated in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. I'm there and he's here. He dwells in me and I dwell in him. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, I in them and thou in me that we may all be one. And so there is this glorious oneness we have with Jesus Christ and that glorious thrill of heart to know that when the last breath is taken down here, there's no discontinuing of the soul's existence. The first breath is taken up there. So there's not a moment of unconsciousness, but that blessed joy of going into the presence of Jesus. Acts 1, this same Jesus shall come again, even as ye have seen him taken up into heaven, so shall he come again. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there ye may be also. And if I go away, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Beloved, he's coming again. The scripture says so. And if ever the church of Christ should be looking to it, it's right now with all of the fervency of its being, with all of the power of the Holy Spirit. There should be such an energy about the true church of Jesus Christ, whether it's young or old. And if these are the last days, our young people should have dreams and visions of what they should do for God. And as I have said from this pulpit, in my whole 21 years, I have never seen a day where I have had so many young people speaking to me about serving Jesus Christ. Never. I thrill to it that there are so many, even in this so-called drug culture, who want to serve the Lord and desire in these last days. God is pouring into their spirit the vision of what can be done for Jesus Christ in these last days. Young people, I call you to that. But let me say this, mothers and dads, I have to call you first. Your lives have to really shine for the Lord Jesus in every part of your family life. There has to be that holy devotion. There has to be the consciousness in a mother and father's heart and in the child's heart that you belong to Jesus. You're not careless about your church attendance. You make sure whether you have a headache or you don't have a headache or how you feel, you struggle out to the house of God. You say, we can't stay home. We belong to Jesus Christ. We love him with all our hearts. And we yearn to be in the house of God where God wants us week by week. You yearn for the services of the church of Jesus Christ. And you yearn to set an example for your young people. I have often said, why should any mother or father somehow think that they can in any way expect from their children more than they have put into their Christian lives. Children have an amazing facility for seeing through all of the sham and all of the cover-up and can see right through and can see a parent who really is devoted to Jesus Christ and one who is not. We don't fool them one iota. And if you can stay home for any little excuse like a little bit of rainstorm or a little bit of snow or a little bit of heavy dew on the ground and give some foolish excuse for staying home in your home when you know you should be worshiping in the house of God, 
how do you expect your children to ever really believe that you are born again and you really know Christ as your Savior? Simple, isn't it? Paul says, do I love you the less because I tell you the truth? Of course not. I love you the more. I love you the more because all of the signs around us point to the coming of Jesus Christ and we've been warned by him that coldness shall come into the church of God and the love of many shall wax cold. And I never want it to be said at the judgment seat of Christ that why didn't Pastor Gian tell us from the pulpit so that we who were born again would understand that Satan would be warring against our souls like never before and dragging us away from the house of God and dragging us away from prayer and dragging us away from our communion with him and for our devotions in our family life and causing a coldness to come into the house of the living God. And as I say that, those of you in the congregation, and I always include myself, for we are brethren together in Christ. We are co-laborers together with Christ. Everyone in this congregation knows you can look now back one year, two years, three, five, ten, and all I ask you is this. The signs of the last days are that coldness is going to come into the hearts of those who are in the true church of Jesus Christ. Not all of them. Not to those that love is appearing. But the true church, many are going to be blinded. Just like Aaron of old was blinded when he went and he took the gold and he melted it down and smelted it down and he listened to the people. What does he say to Moses in Exodus 32? If you want to turn to that. He says to Moses in Exodus 32, the people, the people caused me to do it. Sure, blame anybody. Here's what Aaron says in the 22nd verse. Moses has come back. He's found this terrible condition with the people. Remember the portion we read in the book of Acts? Moses says, there's going to be a prophet to come after me who will be much greater than I, but he will be like unto me. He's going to suffer much the same as I have suffered with all your murmurings, with all of your coldness, with all of your quickness to turn from me. He's going to have the same problem. You're to hear him. He will speak the words of God. And when he found them, he found them, he came down and there was the golden calf. And Aaron is such a clever man, isn't he? Huh? How carefully he does it. Aaron is so smart. Why, when the people came to him and said to him, why, we know, what not, we know not where this man has gone. Where is he? Miss Moses. Moses, who brought them through the Red Sea. Moses, the water they received in the wilderness from the rock and the manna from heaven to feed them and their shoes didn't wear out and their clothing was kept by God. Everything was kept. And as soon as Moses gets away and he's, he's gone for two, three, four weeks, he, he was up there about six weeks in the mount, right away, they, where is he gone? Where, when is he coming back? Make us gods that we can see them. 
And so he says, give me all your gold, give me all your earrings, give me it all. And he says, and he smelt it down. I'm telling you the story before the 22nd birth. He smelt it down and he took a tool and he graved it into the image of a calf. He gravened it himself into the image of a calf. And he said, and these be thy gods. These be thy gods. And then when Moses comes back and finds the people, it says, eating and drinking and dancing, engaging in the lascivious, terrible, horrible sins of Egypt. That's what they were doing. Sex orgies up to the full. And it says there, back in that verse, down in the 25th verse, it says, When Moses saw that the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their own shame among their enemies. Imagine the high priest of Israel. They're naked. And then when Moses speaks to him, notice what he says. 22nd verse. Aaron said, let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. He says to Moses, thou knowest the people. Oh, how we can blame anybody else. Have you ever done that in your life? Hmm? Have you ever done that? Blame somebody. You have to do that. Somebody's at fault. You know, we don't like to take the responsibility ourselves. Somebody else did it. The people said to me, do this. It would be like the congregation. And let me tell you, I have brethren in the Lord who are preaching in some little churches, some young men who just come out of seminary who really love the Lord with all their heart, their soul, and their mind. And they come out of some of our good seminaries. And I want to tell you, if I could show you some of them, and they go to a church where they're called and they're full of the, of the vigor of the Lord, you know, filled to overflowing. And they say to me, boy, I'm just thrilled. waiting to get to my first church and start right out, you know. And they get up to the first church and they preach one or two messages on the salvation of Jesus Christ and the deacons call them into a little meeting and they say, uh, <clears throat> now, brother so-and-so, we just don't have preaching like that here. And we thought we should let you know that the people don't like it. The people said, this is what we want. And do you know that that's exactly what the church in Revelation, in Revelation 3, the word Laodicea, the church of the last days, the word Laodicea means the rule of the people. The rule of the people. The people take over. What do you think is happening in the world today? The people are taking over. It's like in the old days. Every man did as he thought it was right in his own eyes. You do your own thing. It doesn't matter if it hurts anybody else. What's the difference? Do your own thing. Throw compassion out the window. Throw love out the window. Throw tenderness out the window. Throw it all away. Do your own thing. This is a day for doing your own thing. And that's exactly what happened in the days of the punishment of Israel. They did their own thing. And let me tell you, they suffered the terrible judgment of an almighty God. And Aaron said, look at the people. How could I help myself? Don't blame me, Moses. Blame them. 
but he graven it with a tool, and he asked them for the earrings. He had an idea that because they were Israel and because they were Jews, that all he'd have to do was ask for their gold, and he half hoped in his heart, I think, that they wouldn't give it to him. But he made a mistake. The Jews all took their earrings and all their gold and brought it all in. And I want to tell you, Israel had the gold and has always had the gold and will always have the gold. God said that you will control the money bags of all the earth. And this little nation right now of 12 million people, when advice is sought in financial areas, notice the names of the men who are sought for financial assistance in the nations. And you'll find the Jewish names right near the top. And so he said, give me all your gold, bring it in. And he made and he moldened it down and he engraved it. But notice what he says to Moses. He says, this people, thou knowest them, they're set on mischief. For they said unto me, make us gods which shall go before us. For is this Moses, this man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. And I said to them, oh, listen, you know, how nice. You know how we do these things in our minds, you know? We got a whole thing. Have you ever planned something like that, how you're going to look innocent and someone else is going to look guilty? People can do this so fast. You're going to be the innocent looking one and someone else is going to look guilty. Notice what he does. He says, I said to them, Whosoever hath any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me. Then I cast it into the fire. Notice. And there came out this calf. What a liar. What a liar. <laughs> there came out this calf. The, in, the, in the beginning of the chapter, he says, He graven it. He made it. You're not going to tell Moses that. He says, I threw the gold in and the calf jumped out. But you see, trying to establish his innocence. 26 verse, Then Moses stood in the gate of the Lord of the camp and said, Who's on the Lord's side? Let him come unto me. And as I said to you last week, and all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. No one else, only the priestly ones. As I said last week, we're a kingdom of priests and kings. And those that stand on the Lord's side are those who are really born again, who love their Savior with all their heart, their soul, and their mind. Now, may I say this? There are some wonderful lessons we can learn here. I'm not going to try to bring you further into Peter, where I want to bring you next week. But I want to show you that next week that the same thing happened in Peter's case in his epistles. In the portion we read in Acts this morning, uh, the word of God had told us, Moses had said, there's going to be another prophet come after me who'll be greater than me. Him will you follow, him will you listen to, and he will be like unto me. He's going to have similar experience with Israel, just as I have had in this experience here and in many other experiences. But let me say this. Wrong, and may I say this very carefully, Wrong is always wrong. Now you say, boy, that's an intelligent statement. Well, I want to tell you, you wouldn't think so if you looked at people's lives. Wrong 
never ceases to be wrong. And there are no contingencies, no exigencies that allow for sin. No excuses. Aaron was going to pass the buck. He sinned, but he wasn't going to admit it. I put the gold in the fire. I wouldn't have done anything else, but unfortunately the calf jumped out. What could I do? Here was an object of worship. And isn't it true that all the world looks for objects to worship? Take the medallion around the neck. Or when I was a Catholic boy, the scapula I used to wear around my neck. Or take the statues. Or take the candle lighting. Take anything, the statues you see in cars, the statues you see in the front of homes. Man is always looking for something that is seeable and touchable to worship. And the word of God tells us that they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. One of the most difficult things for a man to do is to get to that point where he can worship the unseeable God with all his heart, his soul, and his mind. Because the inclination of the soul of man is to have something that he can touch so that he can worship it. Why is there so much worship of the dollar? Why is there so much worship of gold? Why is there so much worship of houses and homes and buildings and prestige? I notice that when God spoke to Moses, he said, Thou shalt make no graven image, nor anything, anything, not just a graven image, nor anything in heaven and earth before me that thou shalt worship, anything at all. It doesn't matter what it is. All idolatry, God said, is covetousness. The desire for something else. Wrong, beloved, is wrong in Aaron's case. It's wrong in our case. Aaron excused himself and he blamed others for his sin. We use the word unavoidable. We couldn't help it. It's like the man who commits adultery or the woman, the wife who commits adultery and said, but you don't understand my situation. I got no love from my wife or husband. Stop your fooling yourself. It's sin. You're sinning against God. And if your wife or your husband, never in all their lives from this point on were intimate with you again, you stand guilty before God if you commit adultery and try to charge it to your mate. What foolishness the devil puts in our minds. What folly. Trying to find a scapegoat for your sin. Blame someone else. I didn't get enough love. Well, I want to tell you that God's laws and God's ways never change. 
And if you're guilty, say you're guilty. Be specific about that sin and confess it to God and say, I'm not blaming anybody but me. I've committed the sin. Or it's like the man who says, I must drink for my business sake. Or I must drink because my friends, what am I going to do? And so he comes home to his home drunkenness. Sin, absolute sin. God's word is so clear against drunkenness, there can be no doubt about it. Or it's like the businessman, you know, who shades his honesty a little bit to get a good deal. But I would remind you that wrong is wrong no matter where it is. And you can't change it one iota. It's God who's made the rules and the laws and the standards of morality and purity and righteousness and violation of them is sin. And the one who believes they can excuse it by blaming somebody else is making a terrible mistake. The family that wrecks itself by trying to keep up with the Joneses The man who steals to keep his business going or even to feed himself. Wrong is wrong. Sin is sin. And beloved, it would be well for us to remember that. And any of us here this morning who have sinned to confess our sins clearly and openly to God and say, Lord, I'm not blaming another soul in the world. It's me, oh God, who stands in the need of forgiveness and stands in the need of prayer. No Phariseeism. None of that. Oh, that we might learn lessons from Israel. Over in Corinthians 10th chapter, these things were written that ye might Learn lessons, examples to you, so that you do not fall into the same things they fell into. God help us to learn the lessons. I wouldn't want to just preach that the Lord is coming again and that some of the things that are spoken of here in the troubles that Moses had in Israel and that the church has in its present day of a similar character as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the day of Son of Man, as it was in the days of Moses, so shall it be in the day of the Son of Man, as it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the day of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, that's what it says they were doing there, eating and drinking and they weren't even marrying. They were engaging in the licentious rites of Egypt. Immorality and impurity to the core. And I want to tell you that sexual immorality rampant in this country under the name of a new morality is just the old morality violated by mankind and established by the living God. And God's judgment fell here and 3,000 died. And who were the ones who administered the judgment? I want to tell you, it was the tribe of Levi, the tribe of priests. 
We're the royal priesthood, and one day we're going to come with Jesus Christ in Revelation, the 20th chapter, and he's going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and it says his whole army will follow him and bringing judgment upon the earth, and we'll never have to fight the battle. We'll never have to raise a sword because it says, and the sword shall proceed from his mouth, and the sword shall be the word of God, and the kings and the captains and the armies shall fall before him and suffer because of their sin. Are you part of the true church? Are you? I ask you that as I close this morning. Are you part of the true church? Do you really know Christ as your personal Savior? When I talk about things like this, about wrong being wrong, sin being sin, don't blame your problems and your, the things that happen in your life on anybody else. Do you see that God is teaching us lessons here? He's saying, don't you understand? You can be ensnared by Satan himself and find yourself in precisely the same condition as was Israel when Israel was judged deeply by God. And 3,000 died in one day. Oh, beloved, that we will grasp it. Now, in the New Testament, we've got a similar picture. Glorious. I'll speak about that. All I want you to know is this, that Christ is coming soon. Just as Moses came back from that mount and he found that they were eating and drinking, and it tells us that as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the day of Son of Man. And in such a day as they thought, not Christ came and judgment came upon the earth. We know not where this Moses has gone. And I'm just saying this in closing. Peter. Where is the promise of his coming? And the damnable lie that comes back from the scoffers within the church is this. All things continue as they were since the beginning of the creation of the world. That was the same kind of lie that Aaron issued. All things have not continued as they were since the creation. They tried to leave out the great miracle of the flood judgment of God that swept away all the people. And I'm going to speak about that next week. Let us pray. Now, Father, we thank thee for thy precious word this morning. Bless it to our hearts. Lord, may we learn. Father, we could preach that your son is coming soon. But unless we learn lessons, oh, we could just sit here and rejoice in that. You're coming soon. But we're reminded of something else that's very, very important and yet very, very terrible and sad for some. Because the minute you come, there's going to be a judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. And while all hell breaks loose on the earth, the judgment seat of Christ we shall have to appear before to answer for the deeds done in our bodies, whether they have been good or bad. Oh, God, help us to see wrong is always wrong. Sin is always sin. Contingencies and problems and trials and all the other things don't change it one bit. And though we may be, Lord, downtrodden, Though we, Lord, may not be loved, 
Though all of these things might be, we must say with Job of all, yea, though he slay me, yet would I trust him. God help us to see, to learn lessons. Help us not to blame anybody else for our sin. But to say, Father, we have sinned and we need your forgiveness. Lord, if anyone here this morning doesn't know Christ as their Savior, we pray that they might really come to him whom to know aright is life eternal and make that decision in their hearts right now at this time within their own breasts. For thou art coming soon and the day is short. And we pray that souls will truly find Christ as their personal Savior. Do it in the heart this morning. Lord, I'm not going to ask for hands as I usually do, but just do it in the heart. May that heart really be converted to Jesus Christ. For it is with the heart that man believes, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. If they've made it in the heart, Lord, may they come up to the pastor in his study this morning and say, Pastor, I did it in my heart, and now I want to confess it with my mouth to you. I really trust Christ as my personal Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.